Welcome everyone to episode four of Music Now. My name is Brandon Yates, and today our guest is Salim Nerala. Salim is a singer, songwriter, and producer extraordinaire out of Dallas, Texas. Salim just released his sixth album, Skeleton Closet. The opening song we just heard was This Town, the second track off of that, up, that new album, Skeleton Closet. Salim is an amazing songwriter that writes such vivid lyrics and always accompanies them with perfect melodies. Salim is also a seven-time consecutive producer of the year here in Dallas, Texas, and has produced the last four old 97 records, The Damn Wells, Rhett Miller, Death Ray Davies, the list goes on. On this episode, David Trammell, Jamie White, and I go deep with Salim. Hope you like it, and as always, please check out our Facebook and Twitter pages for updates. All right, let's get the conversation started. All right, Salim, welcome. Hello. How are you, sir? Oh, thank you. You're going to cut in rapturous applause, right? Yes. I mean, he's going to triple what I just did. We'll, we'll add one more. Okay. Just a clap. Two more claps. Congrats on the new record. Thank you. It's really, really good. Thank you. It feels really good to finally be done with it. Yeah, there it yeah. is. Right there. Yeah. Pass it around. David's holding it for the audience that can't see it. The us. art is this beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful man. David Trammell is yes, in, yes. A, in a baby blue Guaybera shirt. You. I did that for you. He's holding my uh, CD in his hands and looking through the, the booklet, which I'm very proud of. It does look great. <laughs> Who needs a vid cam? Yeah. What's his name from uh, Good Play by Play? ELO. Jeff Lynn. Jeff, Jeff Lynn. Lynn. There you go. <laughs> it might be the. Uh, so he's looking at a photo of me um, wearing large sunglasses that are probably reminiscent of Jeff Lynn because I, I, don't, I don't have the Jeff Lynn hair really. He had this big. Sort of yeah. afro. You poofed it out a little bit on that shot, though. Didn't yeah, it's it was just a wind. In the back. It was a lot of wind. It. Yeah, it was a windy day. So, uh, who produced this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I produced it. I I worked on it with this a good friend of mine. His name is Jim Valentin, and he lives in Austin. And oh, he sweet. He was involved in a bunch of the Spoon records that cool. that kind of made them. Uh, famous and uh i've done a couple old 97s records with him and awesome. and now my last my last two solo records so we kind of it was kind of like a tandem Very effort cool. awesome well, i want to kind of jump back and start from the beginning with you okay um, the very beginning the very beginning you grew up i in was born in <laughs> illinois <laughs> illinois yeah, but you grew up in el paso right yes i did el paso el paso and Nerala, where's your where's your dad from? What's his your dad's origin? Uh, my dad is from Syria. He, Syria. He okay. was one of thirteen children, the only one that made it out. As far as uh, well, his sister did many many years later. 
Wow. Yeah, small town in Syria called Jeble. And he came straight to uh, Illinois? Uh, yeah, he, okay. he got a scholarship at the University of Illinois in Champaign. Okay. So I always think of uh, them when Rhett Miller sings his, his song, uh, you know, Champaign, Illinois. Right. <laughs> uh, for listeners who don't know it, it's a kind of a damning, uh, <laughs> damning and uh, song about Champaign. But anyway, my parents met there in Champaign on a, on a day the buses weren't running on campus. They were both sitting at a bus stop. Awesome. And so my b- dad, being the swab, swab, deb- debonair player that he was, asked my mother out to coffee. <laughs> that's a history. great story. That's history. Yeah. And you have, you have, I know you've got a brother and a sister. How many siblings? Yeah, I have my brother Ferris, and we played music together for many years. And then uh, my sister Miriam, who's a school teacher in in uh, Lake Highlands, and then. My brother Amir. It's two brothers. Where do you fall in? I'm oldest. Oldest. Yeah. All right. And wisest. And the wisest. Clearly. <laughs> so and I, I carry a staff. <laughs> yeah. If you ever see me in Whole Foods or whatever with my staff, you know, <laughs> you'll know it's me. And you, um, so I'm you. I'm also a necromancer. Nice. And you lived in um, El Paso for how many years before you uh, moved out? Well, I grew up there, so it was like age three. And then split, um, kind of like second year of college. Okay. So, um, and th- and then uh, my brother and I moved to Denton to to form a band. What were y'all called? Uh, we were called. Well, at first we were called Heathen Town. Wow. We, we met this. We met this guy named Brian Lux, who uh, he was a dead ringer for Paul Simonon from the Clash. No kidding. Dressed like him. He even he played bass. He he had studied everything about that guy and learned how to be him. So it was we were we loved the Clash. So we were like, wow, this is great. And then um, and then we had this drummer. His name was Rich Holden, and I'm still friends with Rich. Rich lives in Sausalito, California, and uh, this is a lovely, lovely fella. And uh, Rich worked on a sprout farm, and. Uh, was quite different from Brian. So we, we were called Heathen Town and we made we made this horrible demo that I still have somewhere. Cause I couldn't really sing like I was I, I it took me a long time to really get it together as a singer. But I uh, I got into it because I wrote songs. It wasn't really so much that I right. thought I was Pavarotti or anything. Right. So uh and then Heathen Town um broke up when we came Rich had a, uh, we had our band rehearsal space in Rich's house and we came over there one night to find all our gear was gone mm-hmm. and Brian Lux had split town <laughs> and joined, went to A&M and joined the, the whatever, what's it called? The, the core, the, you know. Oh yeah, the ROTC? Yeah. And took all our gear. <laughs> <laughs> and uh Your gear as well. that was the end of heathen town really and so uh we we kind of um redirected and and formed a band called the moon festival yes i remember and them we didn't have bongos though and then didn't in and in that time period if you if you weren't like funky right or bongo driven right you were you were on a fast track to f- to uh failure <laughs> i think that <laughs> was everyone make fresh street yeah. early I wanna, 90s 
Yeah, it was early 90s, and we, we wanted to be more like, you know, the church or the chameleons, or we, you know, we had sort of long hair and we wore a lot of black, but, but we weren't like goth. And so we, we really confused people because we didn't want to be a goth band. We just were sort of like a moody guitar rock band, <laughs> and that just didn't fly in Denton. So you didn't make uh, Fry Street appearances? No, we never. I've never played Fry Street Fair, actually. Yeah, but now I like to say I'm boycotting it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody is now. I've been boycotting <laughs> Fry Street Fair. For Even if they invite you now. Yeah. No, I can't. I can't appear. So yeah. backing up a little bit. So your brother, obviously a musician as well. Did you have any other family members that were musicians or um, musical family? No, but it's it's really weird. My dad is an accountant and totally like, you know, straight, like. Uh, I mean, I don't mean that like sexually, like he is, but um, but I mean like in the straight world, like very suit and tie kind of guy. And um, but I do remember my first acoustic guitar came from him because he he bought it. He bought an acoustic guitar in Juarez one afternoon, which is really bizarre Tell me thought you still for me. It. Like, I don't. I wish I did. Yeah. Um, but like, if you guys knew my dad, it, it, you're chunks of your brain would be on the walls you know i think like just the what like what he bought an acoustic guitar <laughs> were you it's asking for it or or, no, he, or that he went guitar. into water no i wanted a guitar and he said well i i think he bought one he was thinking one day he was going to pick up the guitar or something i know i don't it's very weird i have to ask him about that actually <laughs> what was he doing in juarez uh, he would river. go over there and buy cheap cookies, and get and he would often have a get us haircuts there, like and they would always nick our ears. So like, <laughs> we would um we would <laughs> complain like, no, we don't want to get our. They always cut our ears, <laughs> which makes me wonder if it was an in- intentional thing. Like, you know, they won't be back. Yeah, but uh, yeah, my dad liked shopping over there. I think he he was always kind of little chintzy that was prior to eleven thousand murders a year <laughs> no nah, he didn't care <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they were my ears are people. bleeding in war is there's a song yeah yeah <laughs> yeah no yeah. kidding what was your uh, what was your first album you ever got um well it was the white album i was in kmart with with my grandmother in the 70s did you guys have Kmart, where yep. you were? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Kmart. So, who's here? Are they kind of gone now, or are they still hanging out? They're still barely around. Hanging. I haven't yeah. seen them. They're not a lot in the South, but. Okay. Well, came, but we were in Kmart, and, and I think I'd heard the Beatles. I was listening to like AM radio and stuff, and I'd hear, heard the Beatles. I liked them, but I think that day, I I just was. I thought a lot of the album covers were sort of stupid looking. And I was interested in this one album that had nothing on it. So simplicity uh, yeah. intrigued you. I was like, ah, I think that's the record for me. And and it turns out it's really a pretty phenomenal first record because it's got a lot of songs that kids can relate to in a kid way, like because like animals are involved, Rocky Raccoon mm-hmm. and piggies, and and even um, I remember. My mom was horrified by why don't we do it in the road, and yeah. I never knew why. I thought it was about pooping. <laughs> nice. Like I thought, you know, that's clearly what he was singing about is doing. That's you why know, you thought your mom was upset about it. Well, hold on. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's not about pooping. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. 
so mind we, you blown. know that that song we knew that song was bad but we we didn't quite know why it was bad we but we liked it it was a little dangerous and you know helter skelter was yeah, dangerous what you say about but then that there were <laughs> i i think it was just too noisy for her um but it had it all you know it had everything like danger and and uh, simplicity and melody and oh everything really good storytelling good yep. storytelling yeah first concert uh well it was an interesting one um i was really into this guy nick Lowe, who i'd found out about through producing elvis costello and actually nick Lowe had a big influence on me because uh even as a teenager i'd sort of decided i i wanted to make records and have a career making my own music but i never wanted to really be a pop star or or be famous or any of that nonsense so nick lowe looked pretty appealing to me because he was a producer but he also made his own records and he was a songwriter and he did his own thing and he didn't really seem to be interested in becoming a pop star so i sort of modeled myself a little bit after him but anyway nick lowe was opening for tom petty at the at the civic center in in el paso and um we were totally in the nosebleed section um like you know they were just like tiny tiny little guys um but it's the first time i didn't know much about tom petty and then we bought long after dark which that was for that tour and and liked it and later on when i grew up i i came to appreciate tom petty a lot more but i was really into nick Lowe and and it a footnote to this story is m- just about two years ago I met Stan Lynch who played drums with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and um, I don't know we he was the original original drummer, drummer yeah okay. and I mentioned that concert and he goes oh well that was me playing drums with Nick Lowe their drummer Bobby Irwin got detained in customs and oh. I was playing drum so <laughs> I didn't even know that you know, we couldn't see right. <laughs> them well enough to know who they could have had Mickey Mouse playing drums <laughs> for all we knew. So that was just interesting. That's cool. You saw The Clash at a young age as that well. That was my you? second concert. Oh, wow. Which I still see clear as day, you know, like, like, um, and I recorded it. I smuggled a micro cassette recorder into the Coliseum, which I've long since lost, which I've, I really wish I had that recording even though it sounded terrible um tough master we went we went with um my algerian cousin mod oko who sort of looks a little like borat and he was our chaperone and he he like was a kind of a disco boy and wore sleeveless shirts and and parachute pants and a big afro and a big mustache he was really something else but i'll never forget mod when he heard the clash just his face just contorted in this just confused sort of disgusting (laughs) like what is this (laughs) noise yeah and we were just loving it seated an interest right there yeah so the clash they were great and i think that was right before they threw mick out because they were on their way to the us festival so it would have been i think they had one more gig in Arizona, the Enos Festival, and then Mick was out. So to me, it was, you know, 
we can all agree that Cut the Crap is not the Clash, right? The final record. Right. That was it. Yep. So we saw them right before the end. That's really cool. So early on, I obviously with the Beatles, Nick Lowe, and the Clash had a profound effect on you musically mm. on the long run. Yeah, I think I was, a b- you know, I was a, uh, definitely a, a weirdo because in El Paso, it, you know, there was like big classic rock town and metal uh, maybe yeah. coming on. And I remember some kids sort of picking on me because uh, I didn't like Rush. And they were like, Elvis Costello, what the, he's a dork, you know, stuff like that. And then I remember this kid, Jack Thompson, who was this really great bass player, who at w- one afternoon he actually told me that for a fact he was one of the top three bass players in the world. <laughs> and um, and then he said... Who was above him? Just I curious. I, I don't remember. Maybe Jocko. But he was, yeah, Getty <laughs> Lee probably, but he was actually ranked you know top three in the world and uh and that and he he told me that and the clash don't even play their instruments they don't they don't play at all they don't know how to play Hmm. and and he he was trying to explain to me that their records are that they have other musicians come in and play all that stuff for them because they can't play this guy <laughs> Jack Thompson. Jack I'd like Thompson. to know where Jack where is, is now and if he still plays the bass. <laughs> he could we could find yeah. him. He might nice be up to number if two. Anybody knows he was like very tall, like six eight. So if anybody out there knows a, a Jack Thompson who's a monstrous, very tall and an, an incredible bass player. Top three. Yeah. Top three in the world. Top two Just, now. You know, have him drop me a line. We're gonna find him. <laughs> I've always wondered, like ge- geographically speaking, like what how that shapes people's musical yeah. outline, but I don't, you know, I, it almost seems like it's it's kind of always the same. It's just it's more with the times, you know, yeah, and what's going on. But did West Texas was there anything that's stuck out in West West Texas? Because um, you had a lot of stuff across the wi- river, and like Juarez, did that blend yeah. in with the, what was going on? Well, or? it didn't. It didn't really. I don't think. Um, but even though. Like all these years later, I finally made a record that sounds like I was raised in w- West Texas, but not in a like sort of Marty Robbins way. Um, I, I'm more, I think a lot about though, the difference though between my childhood, and now you know kids that are growing up now, you know, because with the internet, you can find anything now. You know, the world has totally been connected you know all parts of the world via Which this that's the know. plus side about what's going on with the music business or industry yeah, right now it is talking about but there was it instant it gratification it yeah it Whereas is we had to work for it but w- but in a way there was well. a there was a romance to like right. being like now that i look back like in this this town that was like culturally devoid of just about everything you know really a wasteland and then like searching it trying to find these things that were out there in the world that far far away and there was a romance to it like i remember thinking you know too like i was very into the thought of you know wow somewhere you know in in sydney australia today you know the church is practicing or they're buying paisley shirts or <laughs> marty's playing his rickenbacker or you know or sure. you know the class, you know, we're just thinking of all these, you know, and it was seemed like such a romantic and, you know, 
it was a fantasy and and I wanted to to be in that fantasy, you know, someday. So it you know, it's a lot different than than now, I think, you know. Yeah, completely. Yeah, that's that's going for it. sure. We used to have to listen to the whole <laughs> album when we were yeah. kids, you know. Exactly. It romance. Flip you the, fall in love with the <laughs> album, flip the vinyl over. Well, you know. Yeah. And, you had and to and discover the whole album, not just a song. Yeah, you're totally right. And do you think it put more pressure to make a record that you know kind of was cohesive right. or didn't you know now i just wonder you know people are just downloading one or two songs of a record they like how many people are really thinking heavily heavily investing in the concept of this thing that from start to finish needs to work and i mean i'm still that's why one reason it took me five years to finish my last record is i'm I just can't shake that. Yeah. It messed me up. Yeah. Yeah. I think like it's still going on though. I mean, musician, <laughs> if you cater to musicians <laughs> as a musician, that yeah. you know, I think that uh, you're more likely to make an album like that. I mean, a conceptual album than a pop hit track yeah. album, but I don't know. So we fast forward to Heathen Town. We're back in Denton. Oh, now. back um, to Heathen Town. Yeah. I thought First we'd left those slopes. Yeah, exactly. One of them left with all your gear. We're progressing <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah. So you were in you were in Denton for in, until when? When did you move to Dallas? Um, was that mid nineties? Finally, finally got out of college. I was in no hurry. Like as long as I was in college, my rent was kind of being paid. So, um, and I got an English degree from UNT, which the only other musician I've ever met that got an English degree from UNT was Don Henley. Oh, <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> so I wasn't nearly as successful with my English degree as he was, but... Uh, Did he asshole. come and teach a class? Or <laughs> I don't know. I think he's like an honorary something <laughs> eagle now. Oh. But uh, but anyway, yeah, I had my English degree, which was worthless. And I had really no interest in, in using it for anything other than to make me a better lyricist. So... That's that's a great degree to have if you're going to be a good songwriter, I think. Yeah. Well, that it's the only thing trouble times. Yeah, yeah. It's the only thing I could think of to get. So what was the scene like? And then uh, today, I mean, you got a lot of rock and roll bands. Uh, it's kind of a huge jazz program there. Was that there yeah. then? Or? Um, yeah, just I, I never really cared for Denton. I think Paul Slavens, he's a good friend of mine. He lives in Denton, and we, we like to spar with each other about Denton. Uh. You know, it's a big commuter school. Like, for someone who lived there year-round, it, it just kind of sucked. Like, all the Dallas kids and kids from all everywhere else would roll in, you know, when school was in session. Big, seemed like there was a big sort of frat sorority community there, too, which I've never related to. And um, and then, you know, lots of stupid music with bongos. And um, <laughs> I just kind of hated it. Right. And I and I've tried to play in Ditton over the years. Never felt a connection there. But it seem seems like the same shit is basically just going on, just been recycled as space rock. And um, you know, I still just think it's the kids kind of roll in and roll out and and I don't know. I have a bad attitude about Ditton. So you headed south forty miles to <laughs> down thirty five to Dallas? After that? Uh, yeah, I'm, you know, this is such a massive place, really, when you uh, come from a small... I don't know, were you guys all raised here? I'm from or here, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I lived in Denton. Okay, you lived in, in the nineties. <laughs> yeah. So it's his favorite spot. You liked it too. I loved it. Yeah. I yeah. can see it in your eyes. <laughs> the love. Don't downplay it, man. And where were you raised? I was all over the south and okay. out west, but I never never stayed anywhere long. So yeah. this is the longest I've ever lived anywhere, which is going on nine years now. Wow. So. Well, I don't I don't know how you felt when you moved here and where where were you born, David? Uh Longview, Texas. Okay. So you came from a small town too. I, this whole Metroplex was just overwhelming to me. Like, I didn't, like, I ended up in Plano because I had a girlfriend that ended up in Plano. Man. I hated Plano. I hate Plano. And then I have to credit my brother Ferris for, for really the big, crazy positive change in my life was he found this little duplex on Vickery. Um, and and uh, when... You could still buy a house th- on, you know, the M Streets or, you know, it's n- Vickery's not M Streets, but just south, but like 70,000 bucks, nothing. Mm-hmm. And we, we Mid, got this little 90s, duplex sir. and, you know, s- and, uh, and, and converted the garage, which is the start of my studio, which I've had for all these years. And then pleasantry lanes. Yeah. Started recording ourselves. So, but that, that was really the beginning of, of everything that I now look back on being positive for me as far as living here because I was finally in Dallas proper which Dallas old Dallas to me is it's really charming and really awesome it was and when Deep Ellum was in its heyday yeah Deep Ellum was swinging yep. and and uh you know just uh uh it it just completely changed everything like instead of I finally felt like uh, I could start putting down roots and like actually feeling like I wasn't just, you know, an alien in this, you know, so that in this place. But that that took a good almost 10 years of living, like living in Denton, living in Plano. Li- I lived in Arlington. Oh man. Uh, yeah. You know, and <laughs> trying to play music, original music and kind of you know, make a living. And it was it was really rough. So you found your scene. You got your spot. Yeah. You opened a little studio. Did you start uh, instantly recording yourself, or did you start in the producing? Yeah, no, I had no interest. I actually had no interest in or didn't really think I had the ability to produce or record other people. That didn't happen until later. The quick of that is basically my brother and I um, were at nearing the end of our musical partnership. We had we had spent 10 super frustrating years just beating our heads against a wall, you know, trying to make it and in the 90s it was a totally different game i don't know if you guys played music then but i mean there was one game and that is get signed and then someone gives you permission to have a career and make make records and we got signed by a a little independent label called dragon street records that had like tripping daisy and the nixons and the span and this is the Nerala Brothers. We're no, this was Moon Festival. Moon Festival, okay. But we didn't ever make it past that. So basically, the it was the game was up for us. But but in the late nineties, people were just beginning to start recording themselves, and my brother really pushed hard. Like this is the only way we're going to survive, and so he he was right. He bought this eight track Yamaha recorder with a mixer and and then we set it up in the corner with no isolation or anything and we recorded this in the Rolla Brothers CD um well it ended up being a CD but 
we had no label, we had nothing. We and we were also falling apart as as far as being able to get along with each other. So um we made that those recordings and I started giving people CDRs of it and I gave this girl my friend Tanya Rivas gave her a CDR that she ended up giving to someone at the college radio station in Austin and like 3 years later I'm in CD world working my you know high paying job um as a as a record with store employee with Chris Penn uh no Chris Penn uh, was in the one on Greenville. Oh. I was in Addison. Gotcha. Okay. Yes, but you're right, Chris. Oh, that's did work right. CD World Addison. Yeah. But uh, I, uh, and then my friend John Dufalo called me and said, hey, have you seen The Met? Uh, uh. There's this guy that has a record label that's looking for you guys. And this guy, Brian Sampson, who had this record label called Western Vinyl, which was part of Secretly Canadian, was Se- oh Secretly yeah. Canadian was and still is a, a very successful indie record label he had heard the Neurala brothers on austin college radio one afternoon and was so like taken aback by the song that he actually said he pulled to the side of the road and listened to it and then called the station to find out who it was and he He didn't just shazam it couldn't yeah pre-internet yeah (laughs) now yeah (laughs) who is this uh but uh he in this interview he said I don't know really what their name it might be Neralala Nerula like right. he didn't even really it's know tough. what our name was and the guy who interviewed him at least thankfully put that in the article because it it changed everything like e- everything that happened after that like the Neralala brothers CD coming out German guy Lars um, drummer bought. Neurala Brothers and my first solo record, Polaroid, and in a shop in Italy. Took it back to Germany, gave it to his friend Dirk, who ran a record label called Tapete. A couple of years later, I'm on Tapete Records. Then I'm touring, touring in Europe, and like wow. all just that's mm, so cool. Yeah, r- just appearing on German television. German television. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that clip. That's yeah, that's a funny cool. clip. Yeah, but anyway, I, that's a lot of information and and. That's great but information. But that's... Uh, that's why you're here. Yeah, you know. Um, I hadn't thought about a lot of that stuff in a long time. But that those were that was the humble beginnings of Pleasantry Lane. Just my brother and I in a two-car garage that we converted. And then, actually, when we fell out with each other, we sold it. We sold the place, which was... What studio? One of the dumbest things. I've, we sold the duplex, the everything, gone. And I quit music for a couple <laughs> years. And then... When I eventually got back into it, which was as a bass player, I was in a band called um, Nova Chrome, just playing bass. I just I was like, oh, you know, I don't want to be the lead singer anymore or deal with any of that rubbish. Um, but I eventually formed, met some with some friends, John J. Myers, who actually runs the Freeman Freeman downtown and has the Freeloaders. Um, John J. Myers and I formed a band called The Happiness Factor with Paul Averett. Sounds um, familiar. Yeah. Paul Averett is was in the Beatle band cover band for many years, and now has a band called Revolution Nine. And um, anyway, we formed the Happiness Factor, and we were rehearsing Deep Ellum, and and one, I just realized that I couldn't continue playing music 
in these. Re- I don't know if you guys have ever rehearsed in the con- where you've got a metal band on one side. Yep. And there's just a desperation and yeah. to to it all. Like it's it's depressing. Compete or die. You know, yeah. Eight by eight. Four yeah. Co- eight four by walls. Eight. And yeah. It's hearing everything come through. Yeah. And we did that. And it was fine. But then it wasn't fine. And then so one day I took um, uh, my ex. Jamie and I were going down Vickery, and I wanted to show her the old place. And there's a for sale sign out front. So we rebought it. Got it, it. Got it for seventy. What did you get it for the second time? Uh, hundred and twenty. Okay. Which wow, is still, still not bad. No. Right. Still pretty good. But yeah, still, that was like a fifty thousand dollar, <laughs> you know, blow to the head. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we rebought it, and then and that that was really the beginning of, um, of finally me getting into producing i think that's where this is leading is that when our son gavin was you know when we found out he was coming and i was working in a record shop making big big money (laughs) um i sort of panicked and thought well how the hell am i gonna you know support a family or or do this and um and that's when i got the really great idea to add on a control room and um and and start recording bands and not advertise and not do anything at all to promote my business <laughs> like a total hippie selling out man who was your I first was like oh yeah it'll be fine people will come what yeah you don't want to sell out <laughs> <you know? laughs> it wasn't even that i just had i've just always had this really hippy dippy like Baloney. You know, it'll be, it'll work out. It'll be fine. It's people will come. Who was the first client? Well, I don't know who the first first client was, but I definitely know who the first legitimate client was, and they, uh, it was John Dufalo and Death Ray Davies. And I remember I didn't even really know how to run the software, or, um, but we had a deal where I wasn't working hourly. It was just we when we're finished, we're finished. And so I learned how to do it all while I was recording that record. And looking back on it, it's a pretty good sounding record. Like I'm really like it, it's called the kick in the snare, Death Ray Davies. And um, and 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 it was in a tiny, tiny control room. Like it was much smaller than the space here. Like there was no window there. W- we didn't even have a bathroom like, you know, guys peeing out in the yard. Yeah, the yard you know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like it was it was really bare bones. Um who were you recording with? Uh software? Yeah. It was sonar, which is and that's um so my good friend Rip who who also had a big part in the story. We haven't talked about him, but he he um really got me into um home recording uh because he was the first person I ever met that was recording on computers. And he was totally into sonar and had a deal with them and so you know rip was very instrumental in all that so and he worked on that record as well too rip rip worked on the the kick in the snare and a lot of early productions this is late 90s or early no this is now you know like more like 2003 or four um yeah so it would have been right around when gavin was born and then you started producing the old 97s. You've done four of their records, right? Well, or yeah, that that happened. The first record was in 07, which was roughly um, four years after I started the studio with the small control room. And actually, 
the last person that walked out of the old studio, the old control room, which is gone now, was actually my friend Carter Albert, um, which is, w you know, so um, he was the last person to leave the studio. We were, I was burning a CD of rough mixes for him, and it was like a week before he died, and then um, right the week that he died, in fact, the day, I think the day of his funeral, I was flying to Germany to go on my s my second tour there. It was my uh, record Snowing in My Heart had just come out, which Carter played on a lot. And then um, while I was gone, Rip basically took on the project of leveling the old control room, building the new control room, because we knew the old 97s were coming in October, and we didn't want to have them show up to this little tugboat cramped i mean it was it, it just would have been really tough so um we were going to try to do that actually as a secret for and them not know i mean somehow it got out and they knew what was up but um a lot of stuff was happening you know um so it's coming on uh seven or eight years now that he's been gone Connor. we're coming up on labor eight. day is that yeah. when he yeah, uh, or was yeah, it September? Yeah. Yeah. So it will be eight years in in September, and um, so all that happened. My first old ninety sevens record eight years ago, and and, and then the new studio was basically. And you had somewhere along the way, like nine producers, producer of the year. Um, I don't know how many years in a row yeah, you were running. I think but that all, yeah, that all started like um, when my second record. Um, Beautiful Noise came out and it's it's funny because at some point uh, you know like anybody like started getting these really you know kind of nasty hateful like, oh, why, why does he have a lock on them but the funny thing is I had been playing music in this town for over 15 years before I even ever got nominated for a single Do uh, Observer Award so when Beautiful Noise came out I won Best Song World is Full of People Who Want to Hurt You best album and producer and that was the beginning of what year was that that was like it's a triple crown oh five or six okay. yeah triple crown and um and then that started my run of like i think it was seven or eight years of best producer and that you know at some point they're thoroughly annoyed <laughs> so the la last two years i've lost to i think a rap producer here in town, yeah, which is totally fine because I have no idea who he is, or, or, and I'm, that's like he might as well be making rockets that go to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> we need a recount. <laughs> Are you saying what you do is not I want rocket you to science? Keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> Don't edit that out. <laughs> so now we're on our our sixth solo record. Mm. Yeah, six, number six. Yeah, it took you. What five years to make this thing? It did, and um, it also um, n not to keep circling back to Carter, but um, I've recorded all of my own records since his death out of town, and I think that I at some point um, realized that um, I just you know I don't know if I'm ever gonna be able to uh, accept what happened or deal with it but like for me i just i just 
I just felt like someone had stuck a, their hand into the heart of Dallas music and just ripped it out and threw it into the deepest, blackest ocean. And like for me, I just didn't like, I can, I've made other people, I made, obviously I've made tons of other people's records in this city since it happened, but I haven't, I haven't made a record for myself. So I think I'm finally at the point where I'm ready to, but it's been um, my record Constellation I did in Austin with Billy Harvey. Hit Parade in Austin. Damn good. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Hit Parade in Austin with Jim Ballantyne. And then Skeleton Closet as well. So, mm. yeah, I, I haven't. Realize that. Yeah, yeah, I haven't. Recording. I haven't worked on one of my records um, since uh, Snowing in My Heart. So tell us a little bit more about Carter. Well, Carter, uh, did you guys know him? Sparrows. Oh yeah, yeah I knew yeah, him. So the coolest, the coolest story I have is. Uh, I was doing my own home recordings on uh -huh. a little digital eight track uh, back in those times. And uh, of course, um, would see, uh, go see Sparrows was an amazing band. Um, he's just amazing. I think one of the coolest accolades uh, for me and for Dallas uh, was seeing him um, back up Edie Brickell on the David Letterman show awesome mm -hmm. i was like cool that kind of puts dallas on the map but uh i would see him frequently at like barley house and vickery yeah the and old uh, barley house we should know the like, old barley yeah, which house. is now where the porch is yep, yep. which i'm boycotting the porch i've been boycotting the porch for many years because <laughs> uh did did you ever guys ever hang out at the old barley a few house? times yeah yeah and you know the old muddy waters yeah i'll never you know like right there it's never it's never really been the same since since that place closed either and that's that's yeah. why <laughs> yeah that's why these houses are going but that's yeah that's where i met carter and and uh w my brother and i used to play at barley house and richard winfield was yep. always super yep. supportive of uh, us and so many other bands and carter what came up to us one night you know sort of smoking a cigarette like quickly like always short hey uh you guys are pretty cool, yeah. And uh, yep. and we became friends. Yeah. And um, and he was he was so supportive of the thing that blew me away about him is the way he supported his friends, even though he was the best at everything, the best singer, the best writer, the best front man, the That'll best steal. lead guitar player, the best keyboard player. But he spent so much time and so much of his energy supporting his friends. You know, Trey Johnson yep. being one, you know, played in Fury 3 with Steve Nutt. Um, I think that might have been the first time I saw him. He was playing bass in Fury 3. Um, he supported me. He supported, he supported so many people. And um, that's... W a and he believed... In all of us, yep. that we, that, you know, everyone, uh, all of the people that he supported were just as good as as the greats or the famous people that, you know, people knew about. And he would he would say, you know, it's just a question of time. Like, you, mm. and you believed him. Yep. Like, where someone else could tell me those things, and I would be like, yeah, whatever, you know. But, right. you know, Carter had this... Um, 
spirit that like you know he was he looked like james dean and he was but he <laughs> talked like joe strummer and totally. he was and he was he was larger than life but and he, but yet he was supporting all of these songwriters and bands and fueling you know uh, he it was there's uh, there's no no one i've ever met that had that amount of talent or charisma and but wasn't completely self involved correct and um that's and that's that's yeah. why you know losing him uh was such you know a huge a ter- loss. A b- loss for Dallas. many many people <laughs> for Dallas for our for community and and um i you know i just i was so uh upset and still upset about the way it was just trivialized as you know this sort of oh musician drunken musician on sh- shantex involved in feud with neighbor you know we don't have to go like any further into all that mm-hmm. but like um it was just such a um classic example to me of shallowness on all fronts you know the media the way the police dealt with it everybody you know it's like uh and people really don't not understanding what a massive loss that this one person was to our community you know but the the story i wanted to uh parlay to you was uh you know running into him at barley house or vickery i had actually given him one of my stupid little five song eps and i had this yeah I had this great song that was um somehow I made my uh like digital uh guitar effects processor sound like a uh pedal steel slide guitar yeah uh and so i the song is called sixty six and forty two um so I would remember <laughs> what uh how to uh, get back to that sound yeah. you know. And uh, I actually, you know, Carter's a beautiful soul, and uh, but he's very intimidating. Like, just how you did his, yeah. how he smokes a cigarette, you know. He's a very intimidating, tall, you know, person. So it took many times of running into him for me to even have the balls to, like, say, hey, man, uh, you know, saw you at Curtain Club last night. Awesome. And uh, so I gave him that. Mm-hmm. little compact disc of my stupid songs and uh even cooler that i didn't have to ask hey did you actually listen to oh, it i know i already knew he listened to yeah so i'm walking into yeah. uh vickery and he's pulling out uh he's leaving in his car and uh he sees me and he honks and he rolls down the window, and it's 66 and 42. <laughs> and I'm just like... Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, maybe I should play this song, you know. Uh, I think it's very For fair. Carter. Yeah. So it, it's on it's on my new record, but I'll, I'll do it live. It's called Two Years, and um, I wrote it on uh, the two-year anniversary of his death. And, um, you know, now we're rolling up on eight years, and... It's on my new CD, so it also shows how terribly slow this process has been for me. Mm-hmm. 
Imagine queuing up to feed Birdie customer The young boy screams With a finger And some french ice cream It snows Up in heaven Where the king's still cool You smoke Cubans By a swimming pool Drop some feathers At our feet in June It's been three weeks since we got some sleep Had a baby on the real good cheap In the bunk a minutes roll like weeks Repeat Sandinista on the stereo Got the baby bouncing to and fro Little fingers and they won't let go summer <laughs> <laughs> yes yes tears tears mm. so so on the record you know it's not as is is uh harsh as that you know we put like a i mean it's I mean it's not like a dance song but <laughs> it's kind of this <laughs> spooky little dub beat and some weird you know really thought of uh it's there's some fun things on it you know, that was fitting for the moment, though. I thought it was. Good. Yeah. yeah, once you stri- strip away all the other stuff, it you know, it's it's a more it's emotional. a lot different. Yeah. <laughs> so you read a lot of songs. Um, how many didn't quite make the record on this one? Um, well, I just gave you an EP that's like a companion to the record. It's the Terlingua EP, and um, a couple of the songs that didn't make the record are on that. One's called Guns of Glory, um, which is very. Total clash send yeah. up. Yeah, it's like um, we just totally ripped off I Fought the Law, which is actually fitting because the guy who wrote I Fought the Law is from El Paso. And um, mm. so uh, that and another song called Soldiers, which is like a... Um, y- and I've never really, really written any songs about 
those subjects like you know war and I've always wanted to write uh but that's just not my forte it's not my thing um and uh and then uh, there's a new completely new version of a song called Trilingual which I did for these boombox performances that I've been doing I've been playing with this uh 79 Panasonic cassette boombox and um m- making new mixes and new versions of my songs and um so I'd really kind of come to love this boombox version of Trilingua. So that's why I wanted to do the EP. Let's let's talk about the boombox a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> okay. Um, I just had a big boombox ex- controversy exactly. on Fox 4. Tell me about it. Well, uh, so I was on uh, Fox 4 Good Day last week. And I've been on Fox 4 Good Day like a couple times. And the, the last time was when Hit Parade came out. And um, it's probably like one thing... They don't really have monitors. Have you guys d- done TV, the TV thing? Um, they put these monitors like like 20 feet away from you cause so they're not on camera. They don't want them on camera. And when you're playing with a band and you're in a TV studio, you know, it's not really treated for that. Like the, It's like basically a jet engine and you're trying to sing over it. And um, it, it's, it just, it sucks. It's hard. Like the vocal, the vocals on when we we did Unstoppable on Vox Four a couple years ago, worst recording of any vocals Joe Reyes and I have ever done, and that and it's on TV. So this year I was like quite pleased. Like, oh, I'm going to bring my boombox. This is what I'm doing. It's going to sound awesome, and I'm not going to have to deal with you know. And then this uh, one of the ladies just she d- she was really confused like you're you're gonna play the boom box like i don't like i felt like for the first time in my life a rap artist literally <laughs> like yeah i'm playing with the boom box it, it's gonna be great she she wrote me back well i we don't think this is gonna translate to our audience um could you bring s- another member or bring your band yeah. and um you know basically i the answer was going to be no, but I'm also, you know, not going to say no and get myself off the show. I'm not completely stupid. So I was, I was, I was trying to find, try, I, what I thought is, look, when I get there, we'll sound check. It'll be cool. You'll get it. So you'll understand suddenly that this isn't like, you know, so alien and foreign and bizarre, you know, and it's, it'll be fine. Um, but, but when we got there, um, sound guy, everything was going great. And then this lady showed up and she was hysterical because I think it was an issue of just control at that point. I realized it was, it was, I tell you to do something, you do it. And then I'm very much like, I have like an authority problem. I'll admit it. I think. Uh, at least we <laughs> do too. <laughs> you know, our like our audience can't see that uh, Salim is actually doing this naked. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we can see yeah. that you have a problem with <laughs> being told what to do. Yeah. Um, but it. Uh, but you know, we were supposed to roll two minutes before we were gonna go on. She's telling me I need to change my song, and how long is it? Oh, we can fade it. You know, and then I had this, I had to make a split second decision, you know, and my decision was, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Sue me, write a ticket, 
yell at me, whatever. I mean, yeah. you know. And so I did it. And while I did it, these two ladies were like basically 10 feet away from me just like making a show. So it was wow. really distracting. You know, wow. I was like on live TV and watching these ladies like, you know, making faces and their, you know, arms crossed, you know, stomping around. And it's like super cool. The, uh, bo- the boombox is a band member. Yeah. Yeah, but had a big you know, smile on that. So I know who you were smiling at now. Yeah, I was smiling. <laughs> you know, but it, I, I'm really. It sounded good, and they also, b- by the way, did not put they post the footage of Correct. me online afterwards, which they do for everyone. Now but I want to um, see it more. Well, we've we filmed the whole thing. There's going to be some cool. some uh, even the the fight sequence. <laughs> so yeah, Perfect. so there's going to be some stuff coming out soon. I think. The DVD. I love y- it. Yes. <laughs> might have to blur out some faces but <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about your songwriting craft um uh which i know is a very big subject but okay have the, has <laughs> your has your craft of songwriting changed throughout the years what is your process um well the i guess the first thing i i would say is the only reason i do this or have ever done it it started when i was a kid and i think i was i heard songs in my head and i and i remember asking my mom like hey uh, you know so i i hear music in my head a lot did is that normal or do you and then she asked me some questions to figure out like well you mean songs that are stuck in your head from the radio or and i said well no i think that i'm making them up i think that they're they're things i haven't heard before was it the melodies or the lyrics um i think everything you know um, just songs, you know, melodies w- with words, and then um, so she helped me kind of maybe realize that I, um, that I was, that this music was in there, and that I needed to figure out a way to to get it out of my brain and actually make it something tangible. That so I learned how to play guitar. I didn't learn how to play guitar because I wanted to be a great guitar player like I've always been you know shamelessly kind of under motivated as as a like I love playing bass but that's really the only instrument that I've ever really loved playing all of it came out of my desire to to get these songs out so um that's where it all started and and I have I have some really you know great blackmail recordings of me like with a I bought a, a little one of those little recorders with the microphones you know and the old totally yeah. old school right. and I would mumble you know I have these great recordings of me mumbling melodies and th- I could not sing I didn't know what singing was I didn't and um, that's how it all started and I've just been like s- almost singularly obsessed ever since I was a kid with writing but it's also i just i just wait i just wait for for it to come for it to come like i don't i don't wake up and have a cup of coffee and schedule in my writing sessions and you know you sit like or or like it's always just been like sometimes i'll go months without so does does it all flow out at once whenever you start a song um well do different ways like like a lot of the time the most typical way is that like I pick up a guitar and then there's 
a melody and words. I've been thinking about something or something has uh, made me, uh, you know, it just, and it comes out and then I just start refining it. But on this last record too, I think like when you're only one writer, like I've only, I would, I like writing with other people and I like collaborating. And I think like the best music of all time has actually come from people collaborating with each other. Um, but the reality for many writers is you just don't have that other person. So you, so you're left with one choice. You, you just make do, you do the best you can on your own. But on Skeleton Closet, I, I, w I wanted to try to compensate for it just being me, even though there are collaborations on this record actually with Christy Krueger and Daniel Miller, um, Marty McGuire and a poet named Benjamin Alir Science. So I, is that the spoken the spoken word thing? Yeah, he wrote the words. So I was collaborating with other people, but I also w wanted to write totally mix up the way that I wrote songs. So like, there were songs like "Permanent Holiday" that I wrote around this octagon. Uh, octagon is a it it's is a thing made by Mattel in the seventies. It was like the beginning of looping. They would have these little records you'd put into this home organ, and and they had German musicians playing like funky loops and organs, and so it's really cool That's awesome. and weird. But like I got into these octagon loops, like on Permanent Holiday, and when I heard it, I, th I thought, oh, I want I want to write from the other way, so I'm gonna write around a beat, write a bass line, and then and then I just started singing what like I never wrote down words I just sang this story just came out um so there are several songs on the record that are where I flipped it where I didn't want to just write on, on acoustic guitar like two years so yes yeah. to me I picked up something different you know from your other albums oh, totally. than this one so yeah. I was wondering if there's a different process or anything well and I, I think that that's what like why you see writer you know writers that are really phenomenal musicians like Paul McCartney you know Paul McCartney is a great example of someone who learned how to become a virtuoso on piano to basically expand his songwriting palette to where he was writing these ridiculous songs on piano as well as guitar and and that's what a lot of to me like just the ridiculous guys have like um, over, um, let's say not, and I don't mean this to criticize Bob Dylan, but like just using an example, like Bob Dylan plays guitar and writes songs. And like, yeah, as far as I know, he's not like a hot shit piano player, right? <laughs> um, but, and Elton John doesn't play guitar. He plays piano and he's amazing on piano. But like when you stick to one thing, no matter how good you are, no matter if you're Sir Elton John or Bob Dylan or like it's one, it's kind of like at some point after you've made a ton of records, you're just kind of like recycling. Like I think that's where, where bands and multiple writers and people who play multiple instruments just have an advantage because you can mix up the attack so come at it from a yeah lot of different and that's directions. definitely how i was looking at m this new record of mine is oh, i've made you know i've made all these records and i've done things a certain way and i wanted to push myself that i guess that's the producer in me going okay buddy you know you need to push yourself out of the box to keep to keep keeping it interesting to you and also 
for whoever's you know following you. <laughs> right. What do you think is more important, the the art or the act of making art? Um. Hmm. Well, to me, the act of making art is the only is the way I've survived. I I had to have it to survive. Otherwise, I mean, this world was pretty unappealing to me without um without making art. <laughs> Could you play us another song from either the new record or just deep in your catalog uh, somewhere? Yeah. How about I do Permanent Holiday? Uh, so since I just mentioned this one was one that um, I wrote around a drum beat and a bass line, and I actually didn't even know the chords to this song. Um, and But I've come back around and learned it on acoustic guitar. It's got to make it way more fun So to it's play totally, yeah. yeah. So now I know this one on acoustic guitar, which... It never, it's never existed previously. This is permanent holiday. So you said you were deeply unhappy with your life Gonna quit your job, gonna leave your wife And you told your boss only yesterday That you were going away on a foreign holiday Gonna hop a boat down to Mexico Gonna lay on your back sipping Coca-Cola And your friends will write letters that you'll never get Cause you won't have a phone or a permanent address when you gonna do it, when you gonna do it, when you gonna do it, oh. When you gonna do it, when you gonna do it, when you gonna do it, oh. Cause we got so many gadgets that we're distracted by, we never have any time to pay attention to our lives. Gonna go to a place with no technology, gonna stare at the sky, gonna wait in the sea. Gonna lay on your back under coconut trees Where the girls are friendly and living is cheap And you're never coming back, no, you're never coming back, that's right Sitting on your ass on a tropical beach Spreading suntan lotion all over a peach Isn't this the way life's supposed to be? Not a care in the world or responsibility When you go to track you down. Yes, she paid him a lot cause you'd gone way underground. He finally found you in a village down in Mexico where the drinks are cold and no one ever says no. He said, buddy, can I join you for a drink or two? Cause it sure is hot and I'm a tired gun shoe. Sitting under palm trees staring at the sea. He said, buddy, this sure could be the life for me. So when we gonna do it? When we gonna do it? Oh.
sitting in your cubicle, peddling insurance, doing that tax return. So, Niccolo. <laughs> so, what's next for Salim Narala? Lunch. Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lunch. And then I'm going to go on a, uh, well, in about six weeks, I'm taking Mr. Boombox and we're going to ride on a bus and go up and down the West Coast and Pacific Northwest opening for the old 97s. Good yeah. times. Beautiful. Permanent yeah. holiday. So I'll come back a uh, disheveled mess of lack of sleep and... Uh, Get to work on number seven? Yeah. Well, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for stopping in today. Um, you, ladies guys. and gentlemen, Salim Narala. Thank you. See you at lunch. The boys are back and they're coming for you. The boys are back, so what you gonna do? The boys are back, just like we were in school. The boys are back with the bats and jackboots. The quick to attack and the slow to retreat. The fist tastes like blood and the bird smells like me.